All right. Hi, everyone. This is your host, Keenan. And I am not joined strictly by Scout Pomeranian, but she is upstairs enjoying her nap. Also, time to address the fact I have not done one of these in a pretty long time. Um, it's not that I don't want to at all. Things definitely just kind of move fast and to-do lists mount, et cetera, et cetera. But I've learned a lot more in the last couple of years, all kinds of new cool stuff. I sometimes get discouraged that the stories that I love the most, I've already told on this series, but yeah, I just kind of mount up and realize like, geez, come on, there's so many other things to tell. There's so many other cool things out there. And I've always felt like this, uh, this show gave me the chance to kind of go over that. But with teaching and research and other fun stuff, taking care of bad Pomeranians, hopefully you can understand things aren't as frequent. But if you're one of the listeners that's always been around and like, I know I've gotten a couple emails lately and I was like, yeah, I got to get back. Thank you. Um, it is something fun that I've always enjoyed. And, uh, you know, sharing it out there a little wider is always something I think I can put the effort into now. Anyways, not, I'm not the subject. The title of this one was drained or depleted. What I want to take you guys through a little bit is sort of the mounting science and reliability of looking around the area of a tumor, the other cells, the normal ones, the immune cells. There was a, one of the earliest episodes was about welcome to the jungle, right? The other cells that live around the tumor. We are at a point in science that we can measure that and we can look at it. We can say, this is the type of environment this is. This is the type of ecosystem this tumor lives in versus another tumor that looks like this versus a different one. So the real reason that we kind of shifted towards this in, in lymphoma field, at least, is that with the advent of CAR T cells, like we've talked about on this podcast, amazing living cells that can hunt tumors, kill them. We've engineered them from the patient, go out, find everything it needs, destroy the tumor, something not found in nature. We give it those tools. Why then do we still see CAR T patients die within the first two years? We've basically turned to something at an incredible sci-fi level and there's still weaknesses. First thing we looked at was, okay, are there patient characteristics that make you less likely to do well with CAR T? Absolutely. The standard ones like age, if you're male, sorry guys, and several other like staging mechanisms still work to predict that. But it's usually not a good enough answer. Why didn't it work at the biological level? What happened molecularly that we, we couldn't see? There has to be a reason why those patients fail. So looking deeper, one of my, one of my roles as a, as a science person is to try and find mutations that are associated with failure in the lymphoma I study, DLBCL. I have to, I'll be the first to admit, that doesn't tell the full story. A single change in the DNA of not all the tumor population cells, by the way, doesn't go quite in depth enough. What if I told you that what we're doing now is almost like exploring another planet? What we're doing now is looking something called the TME, tumor microenvironment. The reason those patients failed CAR-T in a lot of cases is going to come down to the fact that the cells surrounding their tumor and the cells within the tumor population itself, they just do not harbor the right environment for T cells to thrive. 
Because the interesting thing you got to remember, these CAR T cells, they develop, they like semi-quickly evolve against this tumor, and then they kind of take off and be, kind of augment the patient's immune system. That's the hope. If that patient's tumor exists in basically a genetic state that is very unfavorable for any immune cell to have success or for good immune cells to have success, despite our best efforts, that won't be a patient that is going to respond to that CAR-T therapy. That does not mean that we can't isolate those patients and say, hey, this drug A, B, and drug C, they're going to work a lot better. That's still part of where we're going with this. But addressing what TME is and this microenvironment, what it looks like, that's kind of the goal of today and what like the big deal is in our field right now. It, it's definitely not too big of a stretch to say that it's the next frontier. So what we used to have was we would take a biopsy of a lymph node, let's say for lymphoma. You can do this with other cancers too. Take a biopsy sample. It's a very thin needle. Get way more cells than you imagine though. Now, in that little biopsy, you will likely also get non-tumor cells, right? You get fibroblasts, you get, you know, little immune cells like neutrophils, Tregs, T-cells, natural killer cells, follicular dendritic cells, all kinds of the good stuff that you would see running around a lymph node, right? Now, with what we use as bulk RNA-seq, we could take that sample, we could get the DNA, we could reverse transcribe it and create RNA. Then we could freeze that RNA. Then from the RNA, we could sequence, or sorry, from, sorry, we'll take the RNA from the sample and reverse transcribe it into cDNA, my bad. We will sequence that cDNA and we will see, okay, here's what everything looks like bulk from this sample. So given that this is still a pretty decent look at what the environment around the tumor looks like, it's still gives us a very good look at what genes are on and off, because remember, that's what RNA's role is. However many copies of the gene are around, that's what it's counting. There are really cool tools out there, like CyberSort, Get It, and Excel, that what they can do is they can take that giant RNA-seq total of all the genes and say, okay, based on a certain setup of genes that we have in our algorithm, we can predict that there is this level of T cells around from the biopsy. There is this levels of neutrophil. There is this level of macrophages around. There's this level of natural killer cells and this level of fibroblasts and several other things, right? All the cells that are non-tumor specific, those tools can measure from that raw big RNA-seq. Now, the game changes a little bit because what we have with those tools that I've described is a single look at each patient. And it says like, basically like, hey, here's your metric for macrophages. Here's your metric for, for T cells, let's say. It's an oversimplification, but hey, it's a fun podcast. What we have now, something called single cell RNA-seq. Instead of the giant bulk hammer of a biopsy, what we do now is we collect cells from a patient and we can put them through an analyzer that goes cell by cell we can perform RNA-seq on each cell. Think about what that gives us. Instead of a big combined picture from the biopsy that we got previously with just bulk RNA-seq, we'll get the RNA from every single one of these cells that we're pulling through here. Number one, that's going to tell us literally how many types of cells of each there are because at that fine level when we're doing that 
you know, the RNA-seq on each cell, we'll know what each of those cells is just based on the gene expression profile. We can, we can hammer that out really easily. The coolest part is that we put this together in giant, colorful maps. These maps, sometimes, I think we use a lot of the time, we can sort with Cytop, a new tech as well. You take the single cell RNA results and you put them sort of on an X and Y axis. The computers that we have today can sort these out by color and say, these are all grouped into a single family. These ones over here, for example, are your Tregs. Maybe these ones over here are your macrophages. And yes, it can also exactly filter around and showcase. Here are the tumor cells. Because the X and Y that it's doing, it's a little bit, it's maybe an oversimplification, it's a little bit like a principal components analysis where it's like main component X, main component Y. That's a bit of a stretch, so I'm not going to say too much more of it. But basically, it makes this cool image of here are the cells that will closely stick together if they have similar RNA expression. So the tumor cells that are alike each other, they'll stick together. The T cells that are alike each other, they'll stick together. So it's sort of a combination between flow cytometry, which is how we can like analyze single cells. We usually only use colors to do that to see what's on their surface. And then just instead of doing a big bulk RNA-seq, we do it cell by cell. So having the tech to do this is amazing. And basically what's happening is that everybody's starting to sort of rely on this information and this data. So cool thing that what we've done, there are two papers. I will do my best to link these to you. But there is, I believe, Catlov 2020 or 2021, I believe. And there is Steen 2021. What both of these papers did in lymphoma is say, okay, we have defined lymphomas by total RNA. And we came up with GCB and ABC classifications. ABC was a little more, a lot more aggressive, worse survival, um, more of a self-sufficient type tumor. Next, uh, and I'm not, this is kind of what I do so I can make fun of it. The hot thing was to say, we were going to classify things by the tumors, by their pattern of DNA mutations. There are five groups, four groups maybe, each one characterized by a pretty collective co-occurring set of mutations. What Katlov and Steen did was something different. They created something we call ecotypes. It's a very cool word, as it should be. They used this single cell RNA tech, and I think in the Katlov case, they actually used some bulk RNA as well. If not, maybe the whole thing. I should actually clarify that. But what Steen did, and I do believe she was the one that characterized ecotypes, was she took massive amounts of tumors and patients and data. And she put those together into these amazing clustering algorithms using this tech and created a very sure look at, okay, of all the tumors that exist in this lymphoma, there are roughly, and she summed it up, about five states of the microenvironment. S1, S2, S3, S4, and S5. Now, to begin, there's so much data in these papers. There's so many genes that are like, okay, these 100 genes are associated with S2, for example. These 20 are associated with S4 or something. Callop did something similar. And she, I think she actually named hers. So there was depleted, mesenchymal, GC-rich, one other really good one. I've got Steen right in front of me here. But what both of them did was also track survival. They found that certain groups and certain tumor microenvironments were very, very predictive of poor survival. 
They applied this further. And at the big ASH meeting that I go to every December, the big thing was, if your microenvironment is like a desert, and it's bare of any immune system cells left over, which is what Steen's S5 is, and it's what Catlaw's depleted phenotype is, you do not do very well with CAR-T. You do not do very well with standard therapy, and you do not do very well with any specific immune therapy. Now, the logic behind this is actually pretty, pretty simple, right? If the area that your tumor grew up in is devoid of any immune system predators or signals, it has basically ran away in its evolution so far away from selection against from the immune cells that if we try to insert these really good killer CAR T cells, it doesn't matter. They've lost all the support characters that they need to be good functional T cells, right? And that's been one of the hardest things, especially for the field, given how exciting CAR T tech is, and trust me, it is still, is that you can't send them into a barren battlefield with no support. They just don't exist well enough. T cells depend on the signals from partner cells, dendritic cells, other T helper cells, things like that. Microenvironment signals from the healthy cells around that tumor have basically been blacked out. So whenever what we're, what we're finding basically now is that there are ways that tumors can evolve. The selection can be so runaway that you basically evolve a tumor that is maybe not even just invisible to the immune system, but it actually dissuades it so badly that by the time symptoms show up, it has terraformed the patient's area, wherever the tumor has like kind of taken hold, multiple places in one case, in a lot of cases, it has scared away all the good guys. So two of the specific examples that I can tell you about the depleted phenotype from Catlove or the, the S5 very deplete B-cell ecotype from Steen, for example, the easiest thing to look for is that these depleted things, they are low in native CD8 T cells. You will not see them running around. Their numbers are so low, they, base, they don't register very well on here. Something that they are high in, unfortunately, is going to be an M2 macrophage. Macrophages are those big things that gobble stuff up. They can differentiate into M1s or M2s. M1s are pretty good guys. They usually eat bad guys. They can even help us with tumors. But if a macrophage has decided to differentiate and become an adult M2, M2s dissuade other things from being around. They dissuade other immune cells. And remember, you want that in your body in a lot of cases because you don't want your immune system frying you up all the time, right? So M2s are very important when things are normal. But what these tumors can evolve to do is create signals that trigger macrophages to become M2s and they enrich their numbers and they feed them and they boost them and they say to multiply. And one of the most nefarious things about M2s, they don't just signal things to go away like Tregs do. They don't just calm the immune system down. M2s eat your regular immune cells. They eat them and get rid of them. It's terrifying. So having a high enrichment in those in the depleted phenotypes that we're talking about here, it's devastating. It means that if you send in a CAR-T in there, you're running the risk that it can't really win that fight against an M2 macrophage. What a lot of this data suggests is that there is a sort of wishbone model 
of evolution for this is that there comes a point where the cells can either sort of differentiate and become a sort of less, because remember the tumor will still form regardless. And it depends on each patient, depends on their immune system. So there's a wishbone model of evolution where they become, they decides a choice. If you're going to become a tumor, are you going to become that one that can kind of coexist with the immune system? That's one that we can fight and augment the immune system to kill. But there becomes another choice. Those, those molecular decisions sort of force an evolutionary path away from that. They force evolution to say the survivors within this tumor population will be the ones that are killing or getting rid of the immune system for us. And by the time the symptoms show, like I said, the place is a desert. So looking at this, it's a bit of a challenge, not only obviously with treatment, but it's sort of a chicken and the egg thing as well. Like I said, I'm a DNA alterations person. I want to see what genes show up in patients that will fail some of these therapies, right? But the problem is, does the patient's typical microenvironment, like the area that their cells live in, does that facilitate mutations that then kind of hit the gas on tumor genesis? Or must there be a mutation first, randomly, let's say, that triggers cells to change and have an advantage in evolution and selection, maybe for growth, maybe for survival, but maybe for running away from the immune system. One of the easiest examples, and I might try to do an entire episode on this gene, is what we call the angel gene, P53, TP53 if I'm being long. P53 is a massive tumor suppressor gene, and if you lose it, you basically gain a ton of survival genes because it is usually a caretaker for our cells. Equally, if you lose P53, those tumors typically have much lower, significantly lower immune like help signals. They basically, the, the cells basically lose their ability to reach out to the immune system to tell it, hey, you need to be active. So losing that make, turns a cell that would normally have signals to reach out and be kind of normal, form sort of an equilibrium with the immune system as all our cells do, and now sort of it can ignore it. It doesn't have any benefit for them. Another thing that that can be associated with is that our immune cells, specifically T cells and natural killer cells, some of them, they rely on death receptors on all of our cells, a lot of times to cause extrinsic death. So T cells will sometimes need to reach out to death receptors on the top of cells and say, yep, I've got you, I see what's inside you, it's time to blow up. Without P53 around, if that's mutated or deleted, those death receptor numbers go down as well. So not only have you basically lost your ability to communicate friendly with the immune system, you also begin, you've also, again, you gain survival signals because of P53's lost. You gain growth signals because of it. You've also lost the ability to at least extrinsically reach out and signal, I am an unhealthy cell. Because those receptors will continue to go down. One of the other strange mutations we've always seen are mutations to structural protein. We never really knew what these were up to. But the new hypotheses are that structural protein losses and like sort of mutations, they can lead to kind of the stuff that our cells excrete that make that matrix an environment. If it's mutated, those little, those long matrix-like proteins that get spit out, 
that kind of glue and that mesh that makes our tissue up, it becomes rougher for our immune systems to traverse. It becomes harder for them to find their way. Equally, cool genes like Notch and Delta that exist on cells that are very proximal signals. Notch and Delta are a receptor ligand pair that find each other, bind, and send signals. If you lose that Notch pathway, you can lead again to another different kind of way that you you basically unhook from the matrix that our body is used to being in. You unhook from the connections the immune cells might have made with you. So anything, anything about a cell that can hide, dissuade, or destroy the immune system, if it can facilitate the environment around it, building and favoring that phenotype, these ecotypes as we're talking about here, it portends and predicts a far inferior survival. And that's just, that's just with standard therapy. That's not counting the fact that this is also really tough on anything that we throw at it as far as CAR-Ts. Because some of the worst, some of the bad actors really start showing up as well. Like I, for the most part, neutrophils are not a good cell to have around because they're very good at wound healing. They're very good at like, like kind of causing chaos. The tumor loves that acidic, terrible chaos. The other immune cells do not like that. So... That's sort of an intro to what TME is. And when you have that depleted or kind of drained phenotype, those T cells can't find their way. They're just not as effective. The supporting cast isn't there. So one of the cool things with this stuff is just, it, it's a big, big deal for the power of machine learning to handle that original data that we talked about, that single cell RNA, RNA-seq stuff. I mean, tens of thousands of cells, each one getting their own genetic expression profile and then clustering them in a beautiful setup. It's one of the coolest things I've seen in the 10 years that I've been doing this. Well, maybe not 10 years, about nine, eight years, maybe still. <laughs> gotta, gotta chill on that. But ultimately, we're at a very new, cool place where patients can not only have their tumor itself sequenced and personalized for treatment, the area around it will also factor into that equation. As you can imagine though, this is a long road ahead for putting this data together. I've made the example of the blind mice and the elephants on this. This is one of those pieces. This is what, this is a new blind, blind mouse that is telling us more about patients. Because if we can put, here's what the inside of these tumors look like. Here are the driving mutations. Here's what genes are on and off in the tumor. And you pair that with everything we're starting to know about the outside of the tumor. In the TME, it's a very bright future. Cool. So given that this data is like highly variable to, I mean, everybody's patient immune system is different. Not only is it that super good opportunity, but with a word of caution, we can't overcluster ourselves into a million different families, but we also can't overassign and say that, hey, you're in this cluster, this drug will work. The path to get to that true personalized medicine is coming. Things like this, where you can sequence and find, here's how many neutrophils you have, here's how many macrophages you have, here's how many CD4 T cells you have. That will be able to exist in a world where data can guide these decisions so much easier. And it's very exciting to see that the science and the medicine behind all of this, it exists on a very positive track and it's in very good hands. So... I hope you enjoyed today. I definitely am going to try. I'm going to try and keep doing more because the minute that I said to myself, ah, maybe I'm out of cool stories, 
I think I wrote down like five things in the last couple of years that I'm like, you know what? Like, that's still cool. This is amazing. I want to share this. Um, so yeah, share it, tell your friends, do whatever you want. Um, I'm going to keep seeing if I can make more of this as always though. Thanks for listening and definitely reach out. Hope to hear from some of you soon. And let me know if you uh, have any ideas or have any questions. Thanks so much again.